Today on the Orthodox Ethos Podcast, Lesson 5 on the truth of our faith, on the veneration of holy relics and holy icons, and Lesson 6 on the veneration of the precious cross and the sign of the cross. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Illumine our hearts, O Master, who lovest mankind, with the pure light of the divine knowledge. Open the eyes of our minds, and an understanding of thy gospel teachings, and plant also fear of thy blessed commandments. And trample on all kinds of desires, we may enter upon a spiritual manner of living, both thinking and doing such things as are well pleasing unto thee. For thou art the illumination of our souls, and the ascent of the glory with an unoriginated Father, the Holy Good and Life created Spirit, both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Amen. All right, so let's go to our text. We're going to be looking at the relics today. I mean, is uh, should have asked this in one of our polls here, but uh, it's good to know where people are at. I bet for the most most of you who are converts, which is probably most of you, uh, or others who are coming coming back to the church after being kind of uh, wandering, relics in the Western world are, are probably something like a little difficult, not that accessible. Whereas here in Greece. Literally, we could go to most churches and most monasteries and find uh, quite a bit, uh, quite a bit of relics to venerate. Here you have on our first page here a, a picture of the relic of the right hand of Saint John Chrysostom from the monastery of Philotheo, and the and the right hand of Saint John the Baptist also on Mount Athos. And of course, there are many many relics all over Mount Athos and all over Greece. And relics were so, so uh, from the very beginning of the church, were, were revered and treasured by the faithful. We'll read, uh, and we'll, as we see in one of the footnotes in this text, we read about this in uh, the life of St. Ignatius the Godbearer. Anybody with a little bit of knowledge of church history, which unfortunately is not that many people today in the Western world, we've, we've become... Uh, amnesia, and uh, we'll see that uh, this was never really an issue for the Orthodox Christians because, as with most everything in the church of this nature, so relics, as, as with almost everything in the church, is, is, is a question of experience, right? So we didn't sit around and say, create these issues, create these dogmas, create these practices from thin air. 
but they were part of our life. They, they organically were always there. Uh, maybe they were smaller and they became larger and more uh, well, widespread, but they were always there. So the question of relics, of course, first and foremost, with the uh, life of our Lord, the Holy Cross, which we're going to talk about tonight, and the, uh, the, the relics associated with the Mother of God, like her belt or her omophorion, her, uh, her cloak, or uh, any number of things that go back. Obviously, the Christians are going to revere these things. Uh, and w the very simple distinction that we've been making in the previous lessons, we need to make again and again throughout the, today's lesson, between veneration and worship. There's so many things I would like to show you, but we don't have time. So many relics. For instance, the relic of St. John of uh, Chrysostom in Vatopedi Monastery, uh, the same monastery we hear the chanting from in our uh, podcast, uh, where they have so many relics there. Uh, they have the skull of the Saint of St. John Chrysostom, and they have the incorrupt ear of St. John Chrysostom. Maybe I can pull that up here. I don't know. Uh, I should have done this already, forgive me, but it's uh, worth the time. Well, before I, before I t get to that, look at the, here's some images from St. John of Shanghai and San Francisco. For you, for all of you who are in America, you have access to one of the most recent examples of the flowering of, of the church and the relics of the church in St. John of Shanghai and San Francisco. Here are images from this, you can search online for yourself, Incorrupt Relics of St. John. And there are many, many uh, images, the ones you see here, of, of, the, uh, of the saint and his body is incorrupt. It's, uh, it's not been uh, dissolved uh, like every other human body. From, well, most most uh, human beings and the remains, the relics, uh, become uh, dust and only the bones remain, but the skin is still on St. John. And of course, this is interpreted, this is interpreted by the church when it's a holy life, because there are such things as relics that are incorrupt which are not holy, right? It's not an automatic, when they're a holy life and they go along with the holy life and the, the miracles and all the rest that you see in the life of St. John of Shanghai and St. Francisco, well, now you see a confirmation by our Lord that the, uh, this was a God-pleasing man and uh, he works many miracles even after his life. So uh, as a package, we always take it, right? We don't take one thing only because you could fall into delusion if you take one thing and say, here it is, this is all we need. So we're going to take the whole package away of life uh, the miracles that were worked, and then all together we're going to say this was indeed a man of God, etc. So we have St. John, who's uh, not far from you. You can venerate his relics there in the, ch in the church of St. John, uh, the, the Virgin Mary in uh, Gary Street in San Francisco. But look at this. Let's see if we can find this real quick uh, here. Can you see that on the screen? I don't know if you can see that. But this is the, I venerated this relic a few times. You actually can see the ear, which is intact. And it's actually not a very good picture, because in, in person it's even more impressive. Uh, it, 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 they open it up and the ear is more. So that, uh, according to holy tradition uh, that we have come down for us, that is uh, the ear that the disciple of St. John of uh, Chrysostom saw uh, the Apostle Paul speaking into the ear of of St. Uh, John uh, and... Uh, when he was striving and praying for divine enlightenment, how to interpret the epistles of the great apostle, uh, the, uh, the disciple, uh, who later became patriarch of Constantinople himself and a saint of the church, saw the apostle Paul speaking into this ear. So the relics are 
ubiquitous throughout church history. We have thousands and ten thousands of relics all throughout the Orthodox Church. So let's go quickly through some of the theological points here so that you are equipped to both understand and believe, but also give a good, good confession to, the, to those who have not the experience and not the faith of the Orthodox. Uh, so first of all, the, we, we know that the, the uh, saint of God uh, was close to the people and they, they, they heard him throughout his life and after his repose. God is the God of the living and not the dead. We've gone over this. Uh, but so much so does the uh, spirit of God, uh, which, is, which we know in scripture, that we, uh, the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. St. Paul says this, for all of us, to a certain degree, we have this assurance if we've been baptized, we're communing, we're confessing, we're, we're in a constant repentance and a struggle, that the Holy Spirit is within. If we don't have that assurance, St. Paul doesn't say only a few people have the temple of the Holy Spirit, that everybody that has, been, has died and, and been resurrected in Christ becomes a temple of the Holy Spirit. But this is to such a degree, in many times in the life of the saints, that the, the relics are incorrupt, or the relics vote, uh, have a, a beautiful scent, or there's, there's a variety of signs that the Lord gives that these relics uh, are, continue to be, even after the repose, a habitation of the Holy Spirit. It's God, of course, that is working in all things in the church. All that is good and blessed and all that is going forth supernatural uh, signs are God, of course, working through it. So it's the, the, the habitation of the Holy Spirit, the, the miracle working that happened throughout the life. You can see also in the relics after the repose. Um, this, this poor uh, fellow here who's always asking these rationalistic questions. If you notice these questions throughout the book, there's one thing that, that characterizes these questions, rationalism, right? It's all got to fit in the little brain, the little tiny brain of the human being. Otherwise, we don't accept it. This is, this is, the, this is the, the sad reality. Uh, so the rationalist is coming, right? This is the, this is the, the, this is the characteristic of the heretic. I'm sorry to, to say that and uh, to use the term. I know people say, well, we shouldn't use that term. I don't think we should use the term in mission work. I agree. I think that it would be undiscerning to use that term because it's loaded from so many people. Although it doesn't really mean anything different than heterodox, by the way. It's the same exact meaning. But it's important for all of us who are orthodox to understand what heresy is all about, what it means to be in delusion and heresy. I mean, God forbid if we can't discern these things, then we're in trouble. And we have to do that. And as a teacher of the faith, I have to do that. Otherwise, uh, I'm not a good teacher. So... What's one of the characteristics we see in this questioner, or the questioners, there's probably many people coming to him, is a collection of discussions he's had with many people, I, I suppose. And it's, 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 it's common to their, their whole approach is, is this rationalism. It's all got to be within the confines of the fallen world and what they're experiencing in the, in their, in their, within the realm of what they can observe with their rational intellect. And of course, that's not the case, is it? There's many things we can't understand and observe with our rational intellect and it's not meant our rational intellect is not meant to understand and explain things it's not the it's not within his power it's not within his function uh because there's things that are beyond the rational intellect not irrational but rational in other words they surpass our ability and so 
the chief characteristic of one who believes and submits to Christ and is humble is, uh, or rather submits to Christ, is humility, right? And so that's how we approach these things, in all humility. And we approach them by observing the life and the work of God in the world through the saints, and therefore we, we learn to trust, and we don't put everything under the examination of uh, our, our rational intellect. So anyway, just a few comments, because it's made a great impression to me every time I come back and I look at the questions that he's asking. Uh, they, are, they are truly uh, of a rationalist, and uh, we, need to, we need to observe that and avoid that in our own life. I mentioned, he says, uh, the elders' response to here, uh, what power did their dead bodies possess to work miracles? Well, he says, look, it's the Holy Spirit who works the miracles. Yeah, the relics of the prophet Elias revived a dead man. So he gives, a, he gives an example of, from kings to kings in the Old Testament of exactly the things that are happening throughout the church history. Uh, how much more in the New Covenant, right? If, it's gonna, if we're, we're seeing this in the Old Covenant with a great prophet, how much more are we going to see it in the saints today? Uh, and then we, we, he, the, the elder points out here, look, we are not honoring bones just to honor bones. We're not, we're not uh, fixated on bones here because God has glorified them. That's why we glorify and honor them as well. Uh, he's the one who gives them miraculous power. He's the one who gives them incorruption. He's the one who gives them this signs of uh, immortality and, uh, and signs of heavenly grace. Uh, and so therefore, how can we not? We're obliged to honor them. We're obliged to recognize the divine power. Uh, talks about you know, the commandments and the idols, confusing the idols with the relics. And of course, the same problem they have with the relics, they have with the icons. So they're calling them idols as well. Uh, uh, so those commandments are not forbidding the veneration of relics, but the worship of idols, which, of course, an idol is something that's in place of or treated as God. We're not treating the relics as God. We're not, ven we're not worshiping the relics. We venerate them. So these are very basic distinctions. If you get that distinction, then this is a very easy chapter to read. You're pretty much done, and you move on. If that distinction is not grasped, then you're going to struggle uh, in your life to... Uh, venerate. Uh, but here's the beautiful thing. When you humble yourself and trust, then the spiritual life begins in earnest. And to be you should, you should be sure, sure that the inability to trust is that we have little faith, we have little experience, we have little exposure, and we have to be patient and just have zeal to be exposed and to be immersed more and more in the life of the church. Uh, now, Saint, Saint, uh, I mean, Elder Cleopa here is making a distinction about uh, the question of avoiding the dead bodies as unclean. Obviously, the distinction being made in this inquiry between the Old and the New Testament. There are things in the Old Testament that are no longer in a ski, no longer in effect. And this is one of them. Uh, there's the, the question of cleanliness, uncleanliness, the, the, uh, the law, the, 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 the rubrics or the typicon surrounding what a Jew could do. Uh, all of that is, is, was the type 
uh, of, of, that has the fulfillment in Christ. Right? So we're no longer observing a lot of those, um, uh, what, uh, the word is escaping me, the, the, um, uh, not the law, the moral law. The moral law is always going to be uh, in effect. But the law is pertaining to ritual, the ritual law. That's what I'm looking for. And so he's saying this is a question of the ritual law, and the ritual law was a, was a part of the pedagogy. Come now to the, the, the New Testament when everything is made new. It's, made, it's a new creation. It's made uh, holy. Obviously, uh, those ordinances, touch not, taste not, handle not, uh, all these things are no longer in effect. And truly, they are, they are in some cases just doctrines of men. But even those that are clearly divine were not for... Uh, or for pedagogical reasons, and so we've reached the fulfillment, and we don't, we don't observe those. The moral law, however, is absolutely in effect, and the spiritual law that is foreshadowed in the type is in effect. So there are things that are foreshadowed in the, in the type, in the ritual, which now have their fulfillment in the, in ter- in, spiritually speaking. We're not going to get into that, but that's just an interesting side, because some people think, well, nothing at all has, we, we just ignore all that. No, we don't ignore it. It has teaching and meaning still. We're not unclean because uh, you know, we didn't go through the ritual cleansing of washing the hand and whatever, all the, all the, all the rubrics there. But, uh, and there's nothing unclean that God has created. Uh, as, as, as the great elder Athanasius Mithenaeus teaches, uh, you know, the, there's, when we talk about uncleanliness, there's only one thing that's unclean, it's sin. Sin is the only uncleanliness the, the, that, we need to, that we need to be uh, vigilant about that which is unclean for instance we say it's unclean is like you know uh, the uh, um, manure you know from the from the animals it's unclean no it's not no it's not it's not unclean before God God created this whole system uh, that he has in human beings and animals that's part that's that's his uh, by his wisdom and that's not unclean the only thing unclean is sin. So the, uh, the other aspect he talks on here, there are exceptions, he says, and it, it, there are exceptions to the, to the whole law of corruption of dead bodies, etc. And we talked about this earlier, the incorruption of the saints. We have, of course, the two prophets of the Old Testament did not die. They were taken, Enoch and Elijah, right? No longer uh, walked, God took him. We have this uh, going back to the Old Testament, and, we, and we, we expect Elijah and Enoch to come again. They will return and preach repentance. Uh, that's an amazing teaching of the fathers, and uh, uh, going back uh, to very early interpretations of the book of Revelation, where we see the two prophets preaching repentance to the Jews. And we have other examples like Melchizedek uh, in terms of... Uh, he was buried somewhere since he was without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end. So there are exceptions to the rule, the general rule of the burial and the corruption of the body. Uh, and of course, the body of our Lord and God and Savior Jesus Christ, which is most important, right? But we also have other examples here in our footnote. We have many examples, and I just mentioned a few in the footnote here. St. Spiridon. On the island here of Corfu or Kerkira, not far from us, from the fourth century, his relics, you can find those, do a search online. They have been there for thousand, I don't know how many years, 500 years. And um, 
they're semi-incorrupt, for the most part incorrupt, and the miracle working of the saint is continuous, and they have many, many examples of Bishop Nectarios there on the island. He protects the people uh, many times against invaders, and, and also he protects them against the... Uh, there's a famous story about him appearing to a magistrate who wanted to... Uh, who was, who was pressur- who, together with the papal bishop, because the, the, the Western powers had kind of taken over Corfu for a time, and they were underneath the... The Venetians, I think it was, and they wanted to uh, force uh, in an Orthodox church to set up a papal altar and do liturgies in the in the midst of the Orthodox church, and the magistrate had ordered it to, to take place the next day. And Saint Spirit appears to him and uh, and also also causes uh, great uh, damage uh, to their efforts. Uh, it's quite a miracle. We're even thinking about publishing it in, in English. Shows you that Saint Spiridon was not in favor of papalism. Was not in favor of the papal Protestants. A lot of people don't know this. You know, uh, I remember when I was becoming Orthodox. They get, I had a friend of mine at the time because I was a catechumen for a while in the in the papal Protestant confession, and uh, I I uh, had a very pious, uh, nice, good man, Father Charles Fiore. He was a Dominican. And he gave me an icon of St. Spiridon uh, as a gift uh, when I was becoming Orthodox, which is, which is, you know, very interesting because it just shows the confusion among, I mean, even good, good knowledgeable clerics in the, in, uh, the papal confession. Uh, he was congratulating me, you know, encouraging me to become Orthodox. I mean, but anyway, um, they, he had this idea that St. Spiridon was the, was the patron of Orthodox. You know, and, we, and to a certain degree, I mean, yes, he confessed. He, but he... Um, but I guess he was kind of actually saying something very true, isn't he? Because he was protecting us against papalism. So that's kind of ironic. St. Gerasimus on the island of Kefalonia. St. Dionysius on the island of Zacanthos. St. Theonas, not far from me, just over the mountain here, uh, in Thessaloniki. All incorrupt. 120 fathers in the Kiev Caves Monastery, all incorrupt. St. John of Shanghai, we said. Another, many, many others are incorrupt. Their bodies have not shown uh, the first fruits of the resurrection the first fruits of the resurrection and then we have this question well uh, they must be dissolved why are the bodies of the saints exempted from decomposition and resurrection we kind of talked about this already we, it is possible for the Lord to find other methods for the transformation of our bodies without there being a need for them to pass directly through death and decay so there you go uh, is again supra rational you've got to crucify your mind and bow down before the revelation of God. And this is a wonderful thing to do. It's a wonderful, freeing thing to do. It's a beautiful thing. It's, it's peace. It brings peace to the soul when we do this. Again, he makes a distinction, talks about Moses here. I'm not going to go into all the details. There's so much to cover here uh, in, in the other sections. We've already been, we've already, we're already late. Uh, so I'm not going to, I think we've, I think we've covered enough. Let me just say here, uh, some of the ancient examples of the use of the relics, right? So we have, you might not know this, some of you, that we that combines both Greek and Latin, and, and it means in place of the table, or instead of the table, it's a piece of cloth. We're talking about this in the uh, book, in the class on uh, divine liturgy. And in there we put the holy relics, and that is like the table in which we do divine liturgy. And that's an ancient tradition going back to the, uh, uh, to the early church, to the catacombs, uh, and we have this uh, example of, uh, for instance, St. Polycarp. 
you know, the epistle of the church of Smyrna. We, we surrounded his relics as if they were an heirloom, most costly than gold, more, more costly than gold, more valuable than the diamond stones. We placed them in the appropriate place. Uh, so you have right there disciples of the disciples treating with great reverence the holy relics. Uh, St. John Chrysostom, we have the, 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 him describing what happens with St. Ignatius and St. Ephraim the Syrian. There are many, many examples. So we honor the relics, he says here, of the martyrs so as to worship him of whom all the martyrs were servants. Just as we honor his servants because they honor, their honor passes over to the master himself, as indeed he himself had said. What did he say? The Lord said, he that receiveth you receiveth me. So this is the, the divine, divinely instituted order of things that in accepting the apostles, in honoring the apostles, we honor him, our Lord Jesus Christ. It's all together. And this is the crucifixion of the mind for those rationalists because guess what? The Pharisees said the same. God forbid that we would be Christians and say the same to the Pharisees. What did they say? You can't forgive sins. You're just a man. And he said, well, uh, I'll show you that I can do this man as a paralytic and, and give him life to show you that I can forgive sins. And he gives this power to the apostles. And of course, not just this, but the whole life in Christ, the whole world, life of the church in Christ is passed down from generation to generation. This is the, this is the great wonder of the incarnation, this, the degree to which he loves us, to what degree he goes to show us his love, right? And this love of God is, is what's a scandal to the rationalist, right? He's scandal. He can't, he can't accept it. He can't get his head around it. That to what degree he has gone, to what emptying, you know, the kenos, kenosis, the Lord has emptied himself out so much so that he works through the relics, he works through the icons, he works through the temples. He, this, is the, this is one of the things we're struggling with right now, with this pandemic, right? This so-called pandemic, this plandemic. I, forgive me for saying it as it is. It's obviously that there, there's a lot of interest to keep this thing going on and on. We're going to go on. Now we're closed down again in Greece. Right? Closure of churches all around Greece. Unbelievable. Uh, phenomenal that we have so few churchmen today to stand up and, and call it out. But anyway, I'm off topic. Uh, the... Uh, uh, the struggle here today, and it's always been the case with the rationalists, is that there's, it's a scandal that in his temple, in his mysteries, in his icons, in, his, uh, in the priest, uh, the type of, the pre, of, of, of Christ who is the priest, all of it is God. He is the one working through, through all of it. So same with the icons here. So he says here, the law does not forbid the veneration of certain signs and representations in the, in the Old Testament. So if you go back to the Old Testament, the law does not forbid everything. There are such signs and representations in the Old Testament. And his holy ones, he says, uh, the representations of his holy ones as well, since this honor does not pertain to the material form which they were constructed, but rather via the holy visage which was depicted, our thoughts ascend to God. Now, if you want to go deeper, by, by the way, uh, there are a number of texts you can read in English on the holy icons. St. John of Damascus, St. Theodore the Studite, St. Germanos of Constantinople are uh, just to name a few, which will give you the whole nine yards of Orthodox teaching on the question of the icons. We have an ecumenical council, of course, the Seventh Ecumenical Council, which decreed the veneration of icons, fought against the terrible plague of iconoclasm for 
almost 100 years, came back again, was defeated, came back, I mean, it was defeated, came back again, and finally defeated with the Sunday of Orthodoxy in the early 9th century. And the church experientially went through the martyrdom, and we have many martyrs, we have confessors who defended the holy icons and the veneration of the holy icons. So iconoclasm was an attack on the incarnation. Those who reject the holy icons are rejecting the incarnation. They're not rejecting images, they're rejecting the person, Christ, who's, who's being venerated in those images, and that he became man and we can depict him. He's, this is not, as he will say here, the essence, we're not depicting the essence of God, but we have the incarnation. That's what, that's again and again, you see again with the iconoclast, I'm sure I'm not the greatest, the greatest historian, but my understanding is that a lot of uh, the origin of iconoclasm ultimately goes back to the, the, the both the Islam and the influence of Islam, it was rising at the time, which is iconoclastic, but also Judaism. Both of these religions are iconoclastic because they're not incarnational because they don't understand that God became man, and so they cannot accept so much of what is the gospel, right? The God, they reject the gospel. You will see, I, I, we're already seeing it, in a very concerted attempt on the part of the globalists and the internationalists and the relativists and the, all the, the various its-isms of our day, an attempt to reconcile Islam, Christianity, and Judaism. You're going to see it. It's already, you've been seeing it for decades. You're seeing more of it. And the Pope is engaged in it right now with his latest encyclical and his meeting there in, uh, in Saudi Arabia, I think it was, or was it in the Middle East, when he had an agreement signed with an imam and they, all the religions are of God, he said. They're, they're given by God. It is, it, it, all, you, all you have to do is look at icon, the icons, iconoclasm, and the theology of the icon, and you can see immediately that that's impossible. There's no way. You don't have to go... There's so many examples, of course, I mean, but I'm just, here we're talking about the icons. So here's another example of the impossibility of iconoclasts to be considered reconcilable with Christian life, Christian dogma, Christian teaching. So you, if the poor Protestant, the poor Protestant who doesn't know history, doesn't know uh, the early church, the experience of the church, doesn't understand this, the poor Protestant falls into this category when he rejects the icons. It's so sad, it's so tragic, because they want Christ. They think, you know, the Christ that they understand through their reading, the more theoretical Christ, right? They want that, but they're rejecting him by rejecting the veneration of holy icons. We have a seventh ecumenical council, which teaches exactly that. This is uh, another example of the uh, lack of historical uh, awareness. Uh, so... He brings up his, uh, this idea that in the Acts of the Apostles uh, that this is some kind of idol, must be an idol, because look what it says in the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, For inasmuch as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone, graven by art uh, and of man's devising. And, of course, this has nothing to do with the icons, does it? So this is, uh, yet again, a misunderstanding of the the icon and the veneration of the icon as opposed to the idols. The the elder says, We teach here that there exists one God alone, while the holy icons possess an utterly different significance from that of co-identification with God or the saint whose form they represent. 
If man is far more sublime than and of, and of another nature from all the statues and images which represent his form, so much the more can God not be of the same nature as images of his form. So we're not confusing the two here. Uh, there's no confusion. Icons and idols are simple, simply material objects. God punishes those who place their hope in them. And then he quotes uh, the Psalms there about the idols. Uh, and this is only referring to idols, he says. If the two cherubim of the Old Testament were placed on the vault by God himself, it is not possible for the holy icons to be forbidden by God. Uh, and we have many uh, miracles uh, that work, we have working through these things, through the icons, right? And I just name a few here in my footnote. Uh, as I say here, as uh, we've talked about already, they're all throughout the church, even today, even in our day of apostasy, we have miracles happening throughout the Orthodox world through icons. Uh, we have in America. We have right now in America. We talked about this last week. We don't need to go into it again. And so this is a sign of God's working through these things. And it's, by the way, we say they're simply material objects. Uh, icons are simply material objects. Well, as the miracles prove... They, they, are, they are material objects, and yet God's grace works through them. And so uh, it's not, if one has experience of this in their life, they've venerated these icons, they've, 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 they've applied the myrrh that comes from them on their face, they've smelled the, the whole church being filled with this scent. Uh, if you have experience of the incarnation, this is, a, this is the continuation of the incarnation, brothers and sisters. This is God's grace in creation. It's God's presence in the world. This is a fruit of and a continuation of the presence of God in the world in, in material objects. This is unlike anything else in, in the world. So then he says, well, these are pagan customs. And Elder Cleopa responds, Christians never imagined God as depicted in icons as some perishable four-footed animal or bird. <laughs> But on the contrary, they painted him as he revealed himself to man. Again, this is revelation. This is the incarnation. This is the conception of the incarnate God. And if you deny this, you deny the incarnation ultimately. All right. Uh, here's a very important distinction. Very important now. This page here, we're going to spend a little time here. So we're on page uh, 109 of the book. If, you've got, if you're looking for where we're at, 109. It is true that no one can see God according to his essence, okay? And we have to unpack this, all right? So obviously God's essence is invisible to man. No one ever seen God, it says in Scripture. Of course no one's ever seen God in his essence, but he revealed himself. And he's, the Lord says to Philip, have I been so long with you, Philip, that you have not seen that I'm in, I'm in the Father and the Father in me. You've seen me, you've seen the Father. So we have the revelation of the Father, the Lord's own words confirm this. And what does this mean? Well, we have uh, not the loss of the essence. We don't see the essence uh, of God, which is beyond, but we see his revelation, his divine energies in the world and the image of God in Christ. And let me go back to this footnote. This is an important footnote. You skipped it. Forgive me. Uh, so he's asking here, God did not become visible to man, and therefore no one knows how he appears, nor can they paint his form in an icon or fashion, a true likeness 
of his continence. So there he goes, denial of the incarnation. And I have a footnote here which is very interesting. Uh, these words reflect the sentiments of the iconoclasts of the 8th century. Anathema to anyone who, quote, ventures to represent the divine image of the Logos after the incarnation with material colors. That is from the uh, iconoclast, right? They're saying anathema to those who, who represent the divine image of the Logos after the incarnation with material colors. So they're saying very clearly, we don't, we don't agree with the ability to, to depict the Logos after the incarnation. They're denying the incarnation. They're denying the ability to, to depict Christ uh, the forms of the saints in lifeless pictures with material colors which are of no value. So they are rejecting the value of the icons. Now, it's interesting, as I say here, that this is probably because they were influenced by the Quran, the Muslims, where it says in the Quran, images are an abomination of the work of Satan. And they view it as idolatry. So the poor Protestant here is actually saying things that the Muslims would say, and he's making himself into being close to the Muslims, because, because they don't have these distinctions between essence and energy. Let's read the whole answer, although there's much, much more we can say on this topic, and it's worthwhile, it's worthwhile to, to visit this. We will visit this. It's really basic, and it's also one that is lost on the papal Protestants, right? This distinction is not really present because they talk about uncreated grace. I'm sorry, you can talk about created grace. Sorry, they talk about created grace. There's such a thing as created grace. We don't have created grace because grace is God, and God is uncreated. So here again, they stumble on the incarnation. They stumble on the implication of the incarnation. They stumble on, with a lack of experience of the uncreated grace, they talk about created grace, which, is, which makes no sense. Because they have, they have no distinctions here. They've lost the distinctions, but they didn't lose the distinctions because philosophically they didn't get it. They lost these distinctions because experientially they lost these distinctions. It's very important. And, these, and it's, if you want to help a papal Protestant out of his delusion, you've got to make bring him to this conclusion. He's got to come to this conclusion that the theology and the philosophy of the scholastics is not something that flows from some kind of theoretical diversion and we can agree to disagree, and there's, but it flows from a lack of experience. And so before there was a falling away from the dogma with Filioque, or before there was innovations among the scholastics, there was a falling away from the experience of God. This is the way we understand all heresy, not just the papal Protestant heresy, but all heresy uh, is understood as a question of dogma and ethos, always together. Question of experience and then of theology. Theology is from experience. Uh, so anyway, let's read what the, the great elder has to say. It is true that no one can see God according to his essence. In other words, as we said, invisible, his spirits, invisible to the sensible eyes of man. Yet not only are the eyes of man insufficient, but also his mind and thought are unable to contain him. The boundaries of his being span infinitude. Thus there is no question in so much as it is totally impossible for us to see him in that form that he is. In other words, in his essence. The archpriests of the Jews, the old man of the Holy of Holies, once every year. According to the tradition, they would sense the holy space plentifully, for they feared that perchance they would see God and die. The three apostles fell to the ground when Jesus revealed to them the divine brilliance of his body on Mount Tabor. The holy apostle fell blind to the ground when Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus. So we see that the vision of God in his essence remains impossible for mortal and finite man. 
And yet, the Old Testament, as well as the sacred history, relates to us that there are appearances, there were appearances of God the Father, of Jesus Christ, and of the Holy Spirit. Is this in contradiction to what was said previously? Not at all. If for men it is impossible to see the essence of God, it is still possible for them to see God with their sensible eyes or their intellect, nous, not the rational, the nous, in forms or shapes that God might appear to them in his divine energies. And this is by way of divine economia, economy. This is the economy. We have the, in theology, we divide things between the theology, which pertains to the Holy Trinity, right, to the eternal reality of the Holy Trinity, and then we talk about the economy, and that, that has to do with the, 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 the mystery and the economy of salvation as revealed in Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit and Pentecost and all the rest. That's what's revealed to us. So we have here now, we see God in the noose, with our eyes even, but also in the noose, in the forms or shapes that God might will to appear to them in his divine energies. And these appearances take place so that man might not die from the vision of God, right? This is how God enables us to encounter him in this world. So Abraham saw the triune God in the form of three travelers under the yoke of Marma. And that's also, by the way, that's how the Holy Trinity passes down to us, uh, how to depict the Holy Trinity. Obviously, we can't depict the essence, we can't depict the, the revelation of the Holy Trinity. The, Holy, the Father has never been revealed per se, right? Um, so we oftentimes, this is the preferred way to depict the Holy Trinity. That's a whole another issue about the question of the Father and depiction in iconography. I don't want to get into that right now, but um, there is a little confusion on that. How, to what degree we can depict the Father? Well, we can depict the, the Ancient of Days, and he is revealed as it's talked about in the, the book of Revelation. Uh, anyway, uh, for I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved, Jacob says. Saw him and said that. Moses saw him in human form, conversing with him face to face, as man speaketh unto his friend. I saw him on Mount Horeb, and he looked and beheld the bush, bush burned with fire. The bush was not consumed. The prophet Isaiah, the prophet Daniel, the prophet Amos, I'm not going to go through all of them. Son of God was seen with human and most glorious form by the prophet Daniel, the deacon Stephen, the apostle Paul, the evangelist John. And finally, the Holy Spirit was seen by St. John the Forerunner during the baptism of the Lord in the form of a dove. It wasn't a dove. People get confused here. They, they paint a dove. It's, it's in the form of a dove. In other words, it was that, that's how it appeared to human beings. That's not, the, the Holy Spirit is not a dove. All right, so we need to make sure we make that distinction the form of a dove, as a, as a dove, as well as by the Holy Apostles on the day of Pentecost in the form of the tongues of fire. It wasn't tongues of fire, literally tongues of fire. It was in the form of it. That's what it, that's what it came to mind. So there, there are divine essence and there's divine energies. The divine energies are, we can see, not just in these examples, but many, many examples throughout church history of these actions, energies, the presence of God as manifested in, in his divine wisdom, uh, for us to commune with him and to be and to see him right? in in his energies, not in his essence. So hopefully that's a distinction that is helpful. And the final words here: the icon depicts the human form of Christ, who, as man, came and dwelt among men. So basically, it's all about the incarnation. All right, it's all about the incarnation. <laughs> Oh, my